Welcome to Better Money, a show that points an x-ray at folks driving capital and driving change, people working for better money. I'm Noelle Brown, and I come from the for-profit world. And I'm Jefferson Smith, and I come from the nonprofit world. We're joined today by Daniel Beer of Century Capital, an impact investment team in New York City, managing urban and community development projects around the country. Welcome, Daniel. It's a pleasure to be with you guys. Daniel, to help our listeners who are not familiar with the work of your company, how would you describe Century Capital? Uh, Century Capital believes that development, and that's real estate development, not technology development, uh, real estate development and finance should be driven by its ability to enhance people's lives. And I think historically, development and finance in the real estate space has been kind of extractive. Right? We leave a building behind, but not much else. But we think that the process of building something and the outcome of what you build has an opportunity to actually affect the community and the people who live in it. And so we're kind of built as an impact investment firm around that value. And then we try to build the infrastructure, the assets, the team in order to execute on that and actually make that vision a reality. When I listen to real estate investor trainers, they say that the money is made on the buy. They say that the biggest piece of value for the real estate investor is, in fact, finding an undervalued asset and purchasing it. I'm not saying that's extraction, but it usually does mean getting something for less than somebody else might think it's worth. How do you make sure that in the real estate investment uh, industry that we are, in fact, adding value more than subtracting value and not only adding value to the places where value is already held? Absolutely. I think the first thing is intent, right? I mean, we have to sit there and say we believe in a value that is expansive of just monetary and financial return. And I think so much of, of what you guys do and, and what this podcast is based on and what I think the world in general is moving towards is knowing that we need that, right? I mean, if you're looking at different types of statistics for millennials or women, right, who are, will outlive quite kind of uh, distinctly their husbands, right, and actually are going to be the asset holders of the future, they're sitting there and saying, I want my money to do something other than just make a buck. So I think, I think intent is really important, and we don't want to kind of glaze over it. And I think for us, we sit there and we look up and say, what is the intent that exists out there from different stakeholders, from different people in different places that are able to participate, right, in using their capital, using their resources, using their skills to forward some type of, you know, forward motion from a societal perspective? So I think that's the, the big first question. Then it's actually about deepening understanding of what it means and the methods that you have to move an individual's life forward. Right. And we really believe kind of in an accurate situational analysis, which that kind of sounds like consulting speak is pretty is pretty basic. It's every community is a little different. Right. And if we have to actually get in that community, activate the voice inside of that community so they can identify what their needs are, what their aspirations are. And then we pair that with empirical data. Right. That we're able to gather from all types of sources in order to say, hey, Here's what we think we can do here. And then we try to build a customized program that actually addresses the needs that are on the ground in an individual place. One of the big issues with community development in general, uh, the history of it, and kind of, I think, problem solvers, 
uh, you know, as way in the way that it's uh, historically been run is we kind of roll out the same program in everywhere we go. And I think so much of moving the needle is getting a deeper understanding of what the specific issues are in a specific place and then having the flexibility to actually address those. Did I answer your question? Let me try this. What's a project you're proud of that illustrates what you do in a way that adds community value in a shared way, as distinct from strictly finding value that can be extracted? Hmm. I would say we have, uh, I'll use the example of our naturally occurring affordable housing fund. So we have a $50 million fund that basically is designed to do, uh, well, to designed to address what I would call the most vulnerable affordable housing uh, supply that exists in the world. And that's naturally occurring affordable housing. And that's affordable housing that's kind of like B and C class units that don't have subsidy, right, are not protected by any type of compliance. But as the market heats up all over the country, we actually sit there and say that supply is going to disappear a lot faster than some, you know, some of these other opportunities. So we have a fund, a financing mechanism that we utilize in order to finance local developers to do moderate rehab on those projects. So in the first place, we're look, working with different community development corporations who exist in Philadelphia, Baltimore, uh, Memphis, a number of different cities. And we're saying, hey, here's the equity capital that you guys need in order to actually make this supply of affordable housing in your neighborhood a little bit better right, and sustain it. But at the same time, <clears throat> we create an impact framework which says, okay, you guys have to spend your capital in a way that actually enhances the local ecosystem. So we focus a lot on the supply chain, right? What contractors are you using, right? Where are you getting your materials from? And can we use those dollars that we're spending, that we're giving you to spend in a way that actually circulates that dollar for the various residents and the various community in the process of that refurbishing and that rehab, not just in the outcome. I'm really curious about your background. Like, how did you get into this? What's your origin story? <laughs> Chance. Chance. <laughs> um, so I'm from New York originally, uh, and I grew up here in the city, and I feel a little bit and a lot of it defined by the city. Uh, I went to college out in the West Coast, um, jumped out to San Francisco and L.A., and ended up working in the technology field. And, and what I ended up focusing on was not actually domestic technology products, but actually emerging market technology products. Uh, and I ended up being on the investment side, working specifically in Latin America. And a lot of what's happening, I think, around the world is as the cost to build a product has dropped and the problems are sustained in all these different places, a lot of these emerging markets have so much talent, entrepreneurs that just need a little bit of capital so that they can create an ecosystem where they actually live. And a lot of that kind of uh, application, you could say, of, of technology expertise or technology investment is about uplifting people. Uh, it's about saying, how do we move this economy forward from a place where it's a little bit fragile and a little bit weak to a place that could be really strong? And so my interest in that type of a problem uh, was really kind of spurred early in my career from just a different perspective. When I came back to New York from that, I, I met a guy named Ray Ramsey. And, and Ray had been an advisor on uh, 
a senior advisor on the fund that I had started uh, in Latin America, Post on Technology. And so he and I had been having discussions over the course of a number of years as to what was needed, not just internationally, which I had kind of engaged him on, but domestically. You know, what are urban communities that have been divested in this kind of fleeing from these industrial centers would need in order to jumpstart their own activity? Because here in the United States, we actually need to figure some of those things out. And at the same time, right, you're having all of these changing demographics, issues of gentrification, uh, people moving into cities and urban areas just being the context for the way people live. Urban so areas like places where science, sirens drive by during podcast interviews. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Here we are live. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, and, and I just think it it's, it's affects me because I grew up in one and I feel like it's shaped me. And, and I see that if we are able to create an urban context that lifts people, then, uh, then I think it would be really, really effective. So my origin story is I came from the tech world uh, and focused on emerging markets and ended up in this by one of what I think happens a lot in life, uh, one person who said we should collaborate on this type of a problem. And, and so that was three years ago. Um, and we've done it in a couple of different vehicles, but, but ended up starting Century Capital. And, and that's kind of the, the place we are today. And I would agree with you that sometimes it's just a, a shift in thinking that impact investing will just be called investing. It's really just incorporating that other context to solve a, an issue or to create an opportunity to going further to collect all the data, financial and non-financial, in, in order to make, you know, really solid investment in, in whatever right you know, part of the spectrum it is, whether it's very targeted kind of private investment all the way up to public investment. And so I agree that I think just helping folks understand that we're just going one step further and trying to create collaborations and partnerships to just really um, bring down the risk of a, of a certain opportunity or a drive return. Um, it's the same metrics we'd use in other investments. It's just maybe in 3D. Right. Totally, yeah. totally, yeah. I, and I that, and I love that 3D. I mean, that's that's such a visual word, and I think that's really what it is. It's about providing a little more color, right, mm -hmm. as to what value means for people, mm -hmm. and how we actually get there, in order to enable those things to happen. So it ain't easy, but it's mm -hmm. worthwhile. I, I want to quibble, and what yes. I'm about. To, and this may be merely theoretical, or even worse, just semantic. But if we say we want to get beyond impact investment just to investment. I guess it depends on how we define it. If what we mean is to make sure that biases aren't clouding market profit opportunity and make sure that a black-owned business that is performing well, uh, that an investor doesn't miss the chance on making that money, right? That something that, oh, I never thought that investing in a particular country or in a, particular, in a, in a particularly environmentally friendly industry could in fact make money. Oh, look, it makes money. Now I can make money that way too. Right. Another way to think about impact investing, I think, is people who are applying money intentionally to solve problems that merely robot algorithm-led investing, only bottom-line yeah. investing, won't solve. And if, and if that's the case, then... If an impact investing goes away, then I guess what? Either we're thinking the market has solved everything or we're not going to try to use the intentional application of capital to solve problems beyond market-oriented problems. Right. Yeah, I, I hear you say, I think a little bit of a semantics, right? Part of it is 
I think we believe that more people should be values oriented. We need some type of an enlightened capitalism. And so we don't want to shy away from that. It's not about it saying impact is all about what the market wants and getting higher return, because I don't think it is. You know, I think sometimes it's about sacrificing a little bit more for some type of sense of value that's explicit, right? That's not financial. But I just think what I meant by the word should go away, I, you know, I don't think it should fully go away, but we need to recruit, right, those out there in the financial field because there's a lot more trillions of dollars and a lot more, not just financial capital, but human beings, people uh, who care about a lot of things, who influence the world to actually participate, right, in this way. And it should become the standard, should become the norm instead of the niche. Amen. Yeah, it's something I, I think about um, where we see examples uh, and shifts in thinking of consumption trends. And I think of kind of this push towards the slow food movement and like, how do we create the slow investing movement where like it's going to taste better? You know, if, if, <laughs> if you do something this way, you're going to feel better about your investment and it's going to overall, you know, improve your life. You know, because we do need to make some appeal for those that aren't naturally interested. I think you said millennials, women, we're seeing it in, in what we do, too. Um, but I think to your point, um, you know, how to get more consensus and excitement around this. Uh, we may need a little bit of shift in messaging. <laughs> Definitely. And I think better product. So, um, Daniel, sounds like Century Capital is sitting kind of right in the middle of all these different pools of capital, whether it be investors, you know, looking at opportunity zones or private capital going into a project or public capital looking to support a community, charitable organizations supporting a community. What are the limits of this? Like, what's the one thing that kind of government or democracy should be doing to, to have the effect it needs to do to improve a community? We believe and I, I believe we is boring sometimes because you 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 move responsibility over to, over to Hogan. I, I believe that the problems that we had today, you know, are in to use the buzzword more you know, cross sectoral. So we need to figure out more ways to not be in our silos. You know, the public world, the private world, the nonprofit world actually have to kind of come together to figure out what each one can do best on any given initiative and be flexible to bring that to the table. So I think the public world is almost like, a, uh, you know, in, in bowling where they have the, the guardrails and you put those up so that if you're throwing the ball in, it somehow ends up down the, uh, you know, I'm, I don't actually bowl, so I don't know the exact words, <laughs> right, down the pike and actually hit something. I think the public officials and government needs to set those guardrails uh, from a negative screen perspective. What are we not going to stand for? And then on top of that, need to incentivize in a real way good behavior. And I think that's a lot of the role that the public should play. And by public, I mean the public sector should play. And they also, I think, can serve as a convener in a lot of ways, bringing together different partners and people around specific and certain initiatives because they're a little bit more authoritative in that sense. So I really believe that that's what they should be doing. But I think all problems require some type of cross-sectoral component in the 21st century. And I think we have to be more creative about the different ways they work. 
you know, for us, we, we have a, we're a private real estate impact investment firm, but we have a nonprofit affiliate called Century Communities. And that affiliate is designed to do things that we as an investment firm could not in pursuit of our mission. And so I think all types of, you know, public private partnerships, all types of, you know, uh, mega communities, uh, which is a, a term, uh, a nomenclature created by Booz Allen, Reggie Van Lee, who's one of our partners, uh, was high up Booz Allen, built these mega communities, these kind of interesting, non-informal, yet sometimes formal uh, intersection points of different types of organizations around specific problems. And I think that's really, really what's necessary. In terms of just the limits of, of what we can do, I, I'm a big believer uh, in barrier removal for people. Right? I think we have to invest in people, believe in them, and remove the barriers because they have their own uh, life force that's making choices and actions every day. I, I don't think uh, we can give people achievement. Uh, you know, Sometimes the word empower bothers me a little because I believe that they have a power, all people do, and I want to see them as equals, and I want to make it easier for them to play, and I want to make it easier for them to achieve through certain actions and activities that we work on. Um, and there are just limits to, to what one person can do for another, I think, sometimes, but I think we have to go so much farther in helping each other get there. So, If someone were going to call bullshit on your firm, what would they say? Or how do you have to? What do you have to do to make sure it isn't just bull? Measurement, measurement, you know, results. That that and and that's that's as self-critical as it is uh, third-party critical. What's the biggest critique you have to deal with? Trust, trust in communities. That's that's the biggest critique. We have to. I I would say that we fight to deal with. I think we get through it. And by, and by trusting community, and by trusting communities, you mean, oh, that's a neighborhood. That's the kind of neighborhood. That's the kind of community I don't invest in. Definitely. I mean, I think that's a huge part of it. I think people not seeing value there. I think, but I, I, what I actually meant on the other side was, you know, we're a national player that partners with local partners, and just the history of that has not been so great. So when we're coming in as a developer, we actually, you know, a lot of that initial wall is we want to activate the community voice and show that we're actually listening in a real way, in a real way, because the challenge comes up from the community that says, well, you know, you probably are fake. You know, you're probably pretending and we have to communicate to them that we're not. Oh, you so know, you go you go to you, you go to East St. Louis and they say, oh, here's some New Yorkers. Oh, yeah, they're totally here to help. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So I think that's a challenge, but that's a challenge we accept. Well, let's move on to the rapid round. Um, oh, boy. Daniel, what's a piece of advice that still inspires you? A friend of mine told me um, that, that ordinary people can do extraordinary things. And that is advice for me because I think sometimes we worry so much about being perhaps extraordinary. Um, and, and we're kind of, for me on a personal level, it's like, we're all a little bit too close to our own humanity to know or feel that we're really that extraordinary. And instead reframing that thing as, as being, I'm an ordinary person, an ordinary person that in certain contexts is able to do extraordinary things. 
I think is both personally empowering, personally freeing, and also allows you to look outside and kind of, you know, in every conversation that you have with whoever you're having it with, see a little bit more potential. Daniel, what's a book that needs to be on our bookshelves? Mm, mm. What's that book? One second. I'm going to find it. it there's a, oh, there's, there's, a, there's a great book called The New Localism. I'm forgetting the author now. But uh, it's about how a lot of what we have to do in order to move our country forward is to focus on local environments and local communities and revitalize them and give them each their own or kind of uncover each's uh, historical identity and reframe it in a way that's valuable, you know, in contemporary terms. And I just thought for urban development and thoughtfulness about the way urban America looks into the future, that's definitely a big one. What's a quote that will inspire people to live their values or that inspires you to live your values? Do you guys know the artist Yester Gates? Yes. Nope. Yeah, he's he's an amazing uh, artist, but who has been working in the South Side of Chicago, and he's been <laughs> taking old decrepit buildings um, and uh, revitalizing them, turning them into kind of cultural uh, institutions as a way to bring activity and attention to a place that normally would be looked over. Stony Island's art bank. I really recommend people check out his work, and it's been an inspiration for some of the initiatives that we're working on today. Um, the quote that I'm thinking of, forget where he said it, but he was asked uh, why he starts with culture, why he starts with art, and why he's taking these buildings and turning them into what you could call some type of museum, accessible museum, rather than focusing on you know food and water and finance. And he said, what I've found is that when there are certain resources that haven't been made available to under-resourced cities or neighborhoods or communities, that sometimes culture is the thing that helps ignite. And it, that it can't do everything, but that there's a way in which if you start with culture and get people reinvested in their place, that other types of amenities, other types of services start to grow. And this is the part I love most. He says, and then people can make a demand that's a poetic demand. And the political demands that are necessary to wake up our cities, they also become very poetic. And there's something beautiful. about <laughs> that quality of what he's talking about, that, that bringing a little bit more feeling into finance that we need at the same time as being really disciplined about the finance side, right, in order to bring people to the table in that sense. You know, just as a, as a personal story, which I, I just thought of, which may, may be interesting. You know, I, I, I live in, in Bed-Stuy, Brooklyn, and uh, I, have, <laughs> I think I have some type of ethnic ambiguity. But I, I've been going to Bed-Stuy my whole life. I, I, I have friends there since I was a kid, and I stayed there for months on end when I was a kid. And Bed-Stuy is a neighborhood that's changing, right? Uh, it has issues of gentrification, cultural tension. And I was walking... This last week, down the street from Northern Avenue, the A train, to my house. And I walked by this guy who just looked frustrated. And he walked by and he looked me right in my eyes. And I stepped by him. And he turned and he screamed, there goes the fucking neighborhood. 
And, you know, there's something about that that, that, that is important for me to hear. And I think important for a lot of people to feel on a personal level. Like, I've been going there my whole life. Like, I know Bed-Stuy. I'm, I'm not really an outsider. But there are. But at the same time, it just kind of... And he doesn't know about me, right? He doesn't know the work I'm trying to do. He doesn't know the effort I put in. He doesn't know my history in, in the place. But our, our cities are at such a point because of the problems that have remained unsolved that that type of personal frustration and tension is bubbling. And it's, it's personal. It's close to heart. And it's upset. And it's angry. And, and I think we really have to figure out what to do about that. And so this Theester Gates quote, the idea of, of the political demands become poetic. Like there's something about that moment where, I, you know, this is last week, where he says that really affected me and got us to feel like this is something, I mean, to feel that my work is, again, as important as ever. So anyway, I, I thought that maybe is a useful story. That's fantastic. So with that story... What you're doing is finding maybe opportunity zones, maybe other either with subsidy or without subsidy opportunities to build affordable housing. And you are looking to, in fact, improve neighborhoods and improve communities. That is a different way of saying other people might describe that as the act of gentrification. How do you improve communities and what do you as an organization or what do you need support with to make sure in that process you're not merely displacing communities? Yeah. Yeah. Um, the movement of capital into a place or the appreciation of real estate is not inherently negative. What's negative is that people are not participating in an inclusive way and specifically the residents who have lived in that neighborhood for a long time, are not participating in an inclusive way in the appreciation of that neighborhood or getting what I would say they deserve for the place that has been built. And so as we think about putting capital into neighborhoods, which is essential and necessary, so we're not a fan of blocking that because if you go into these Different places, they, they need some type of value catalyst. They need that type of change. But we have to think about with every dollar we spend, internally with our policies and practices, externally with our partners, how do we actually allow that value that we're putting in, investing and growing to actually be circulated to the people around? And there is myriad tools and techniques to be able to do so. It just starts with a real discipline to say we want to spend it in a way that benefits a certain person and a certain catchment area around the project that we're going after. And so that's the way we yeah, well, really and, and, and And that's my question. My question is, what do you like? Let's let's just assume that my question assumed everything you said. Yeah. The injection of right. money isn't the bad thing. The problem is that money is too concentrated and it's doing stuff that isn't for the benefit of some renter who has worked in, lived in the neighborhood for decades, unless blank happens, what do we have to do so the active investment isn't merely a repeat of the cycle of gentrification and displacement? Totally. Yeah. I mean, I think, okay, A, outcome is affordable. Affordable housing is important. 
Um, the second thing is, like I said, supply chain. When you're spending a dollar, where can you use that dollar? Can you use it in a local business, right? And we set really high standards for participation on the contracting that we do. I think other things are really custom, right? I mean, in Atlanta, you have anti-tax displacement funds, which is can be a, a partnership between public institutions, philanthropic institutions, right? That addresses the problem of when there's an area that's actually where the real estate value is going up, right? Like, and a senior has a stagnant income, but their property taxes are going up. It's a huge push for displacement. And so I think we have to coordinate, right? And whenever we move into an invest place, we look for opportunities to partner with different types of nonprofits, different types of city governments to solve some of those problems in uh, collaboration, right? Contingent with our investment in that place. Well, I just want to say thank you so much for being on Better Money with us. The time we've spent has been really informative and I just wish you all the best. Thank you guys so much for having me. I'm totally excited by what you guys are doing. Thank you so much. We also want to say thanks to our producers, Amalia and Ruth, and X-Ray FM here in Portland, Oregon. Thank you also to Phantom Sons for the theme music. You can find all episodes of Better Money on xraypod.com and all other places where you get your podcasts. If you have questions, comments, or high fives to share, you can email us at bettermoney at xrayfm.com.